you for joining us today at Renovatus, a church for people under renovation. If you have a prayer need, would like to talk with a pastor, or want to share how this message impacts you, we would love to hear from you. Email us at info at renovatuschurch.com. If you desire to support us in the work we are doing for the kingdom of God in Charlotte, you can give online at renovatuschurch.com. We hope you are truly blessed by today's message. Let's open our Bibles up to Mark chapter 10. Uh, For those of you who've been here during the series, you're probably already there, uh, at least in your mind, if nothing else. So we're going to continue our flip series today. Um, You know, last week we kind of explored the ways in which uh, Jesus is teaching on marriage and divorce um, flipped traditional social understandings of what that is and what that means, and also flipped the religious folks' understanding of what's important to God. Um, is, it, is it important that we know all the rules and the sub-rules and the paragraphs and the sections and all of that, or is God much more concerned with knowing us and with us knowing Him? Um, because all those things can, can get complicated, especially when you talk about something as complicated as marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Um, and especially framed within the context that it was framed last week where the Pharisees were using it as a way to trip Jesus up, to test him, to challenge him. Uh, This morning, um, we're still going to be talking about how Jesus flips things, but I think this morning you're going to hear more of a message of how Jesus might be flipping things in our own lives, not just within the social structure, but within our own lives. Um, What God might be trying to get at within us, what kind of transformation Uh, might the Lord be calling us to? So um, let's dive in. Starting at verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, by the way, this is that pilgrimage I was talking about. He's headed towards Jerusalem. The journey is towards the cross, which is the climax of Mark's gospel. Some people call Mark a passion narrative with an extended introduction. Um, So as he was setting out on a journey, uh, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? There is no one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all of these since my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. You might be wondering why they're perplexed. This is a culture in which wealth symbolized access. Um, And there was still some of that Deuteronomistic theology we talk about sometimes from the Old Testament. If you do good, you get blessed. If you do bad, things get taken away from you. That is still a pervasive thought within Jewish minds. You see this in particular in John 9 with the um, uh, 
the man that's born blind, and the disciples say, what has he done that he was born blind? There's still this idea that God blesses and punishes based on you know, behavior. So someone who's rich must be doing something right, and this guy's admitted that in his own mind he's pretty righteous. He's kept the law since his youth. Uh, so that's why in, in our Western mind, sometimes we go, oh, what are they talking about? Rich people are sometimes the most awful people in the world. But for this context, uh, it was a challenge to some of the ways that they thought about things. But Jesus said to them again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God all things are possible. And Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields <clears throat> with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Is my sound okay, by the way? Am I good? Can everyone hear me okay? All right. A few years ago, I had the opportunity uh, at Gardner-Webb, actually. Uh, it was a preaching conference. I had the opportunity to hear one of my favorite preachers, Reverend Will Williman. Some of you are familiar um, with him. And I heard him preach a sermon from this text, from this story, except he used the version as it is told in Matthew, which is slightly different, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But in that sermon, he used a phrase uh, that I have used often in many of my sermons, not just sermons from this subject, from this story, but in other sermons as well. And that phrase is this. Sometimes the only difference between good news and bad news is where you happen to be sitting when you get the news. He lamented that sometimes as preachers, it is hard to tell whether the scriptures we're dealing with each week are indeed bringing us a good news of grace or the good news or the bad news of judgment. Now, all the lectionary texts this week actually uh, feel this way. Um, I have a friend this morning who's preaching the Old Testament text from Amos 5 at a church in, in Gastonia. And this week we were talking about our passages. And we both had this sense of we weren't exactly sure whether we were bringing a sermon of good news to our churches or a sermon of bad news to our churches. On the one hand, we both felt like these were very important, necessary texts that the church in the 21st century, particularly American, North American, Western Christianity. But at the same time, we both had this sense that these passages are heavy. And for some folks, they might come across as bad news, not good news. And this is true not only in, the, in our dealing with the Scriptures. You don't have to deal with Scriptures to find this irony in life. Perhaps there's been a time in your own lives when someone had said, has said something to you that at the time was difficult to hear 
but it turned out to be one of the most loving things that someone could have said to you. Some of the most loving teachers I have ever had in my life were also some of the toughest teachers that I've had in my life. On the first day of class, I often felt like the syllabus was bad news. But on the last day of class, I realized that what they had handed me was actually good news. My own children have had similar experiences. They're in school now, and I forgot what that's like. I still have elementary school teachers I need to forgive. Um, but they've had the same experience, teachers that have been extremely tough, but have turned out to be some of the better teachers that they've had. And what about life lessons themselves, right? Life has a way of teaching you these lessons. How often has the bad news of losing a job led to the good news of finding a much better one? Or in lieu of our sermon last week, how has a broken relationship maybe led to a better one. And it's sometimes difficult to tell in the moment. Life teaches us, those who are supposed to teach us, sometimes teach us using this irony. Our friends teach us. In fact, Aristotle felt like a friend was the only one that could teach us the most important things in life. Because according to Aristotle, a friend knows how to hurt you in the right way. These ironies, these moments where bad news over time becomes seen as good news or what we think might be good news is sometimes heard as bad news. It's sometimes difficult to discern our way through. Sometimes it's difficult to discern the bad from the good news. Take this morning's reading from Mark chapter 10. Now, you may have heard this story preached before or told before, and it's often referred to as the story of the rich young ruler, right? Y'all familiar with that a little bit? However, in Mark's account, the man is not introduced to us as young or rich or as a ruler. In Mark's telling of this scenario, the man is just introduced as a man. It is inconsequential to Mark at the start of the story whether this man is young, whether this man has money, or whether this man has any power at all. None of that is of any consequence. Which is unfortunate for us this morning. Because it would be much easier for us to hear this scripture and for us to use it as a projection on others of our own prejudices if it appeared that he was one unlike us with all the potential in the world, youth, Wealth and power. You know the type, right? The type we really like to hate and be jealous of. And it's easy for us to want to take this text and project it on people like that. You know, good news for people like us, bad news for people like that. But Mark doesn't play those games. Mark introduces him to us as just a man. It is noted later that he has Many possessions, to which I ask the question, don't we all this morning have many possessions? I think all of us, if we were to hear this verbal command from Jesus to go sell everything we have, even though we might not feel very wealthy in our own lives, it would be bad news for us as well. There would be a lot to lose, and there would be a lot that was at stake. He comes to Jesus with a question in this story, as 
last week's story as well. The Pharisees came to Jesus with a question. However, it does seem at this point in the story that his motives are different. It is not said that he has come to test Jesus. It seems as though he is asking a genuine question. Lord, how do I inherit eternal life? Which is an odd question, first of all, uh, because what is eternal life? What does that mean? What does it look like? But also because that's not even really part of Mark's message in the Gospel of Mark. That phrase isn't found anywhere else in the Gospel. Eternal life is just not part of what Mark is driving at. You get to John, we can talk about that. But in Mark, it's just not part of his theology. In fact, even when Jesus answers, Jesus never refers to eternal life again. He only refers to the kingdom of God, not eternal life. But this is what is on the heart of this man. He obviously had heard about Jesus' good teaching, um, but apparently he had never sat under Jesus' good teaching. Because had he, in the Gospel of Mark narrative, he would have found that there were lots of times where the Gospel sounded like bad news to those who heard it. Even the disciples in Mark have a hard time hearing the things that Jesus has to say, and they've spent a lot of time with him. It also appears that he wasn't around last week when the question was asked about marriage and divorce, and he did not hear Jesus' answer, which included an admonition that we should live like children in the kingdom, fully reliant on God our Father. If he had heard that, he had not taken it to heart because it seems from this passage that he has still had put much faith in his own possessions. Now Jesus responds to the man at first by referring him to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, particularly though the commandments that deal with how we love one another. Not so much about how we love God, but how we love one another. And those commandments are not just about how we love one another. Those commandments are about how we treat one another justly. What righteousness looks like in kingdom relationships one with another. Those are the commandments that Jesus highlights when talking about how to inherit eternal life. And upon learning the man's confidence in his own adherence to these commandments, Jesus then returns to form, as he does in his previous question and answering sessions from Mark 9 through the chapter, through chapter 10 of Mark. And he goes deeper into the question. And rather than talking about means, he goes and talks about motives or intentions. Not directly, but indirectly. By challenging what might be the greatest obstacle for this man in inheriting eternal life, or in Jesus' mind, entering the kingdom of God. And he says, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And the man leaves grieved and shocked. Now we don't know what the man does. We often hear this story told as if he doesn't do this. The text doesn't actually tell us what he does. It just tell us, tells us that he was sad about having to do it. We're not exactly sure whether he followed through or not. But what we do know is that what was asked of him was heavy to bear. It was tough. It was something he just wasn't prepared to do. He came searching for the good news that he had been hearing about, and he left with the bad news that his own possession stood in the way of him entering the kingdom of God. Jesus 
uh, excuse me, in the kingdom of God. Jesus responds then to his disciples after he leaves by telling his disciples how difficult it is for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus uses the camel through the eye of a needle metaphor to describe the kind of hold that possessions often have on the lives of those who accumulate them. I just want to say something here. There's been like some softening of this metaphor over the years. Like you may have heard something like there's this place in the Middle East called the eye of a needle and you have to pay like high taxes to get through it with your camel or something like that. Um, I honestly like have heard that. I didn't like research it to make sure it was true because it doesn't matter. Uh, This is actually a Middle Eastern metaphor you find even in ancient Egyptian writings, except it's often an elephant that is used, not a camel. Uh, when you get into the Middle East, north of Egypt, not in Africa, but like in, in the Mesopotamia area, you find this metaphor being used with camels because camels were the largest animals in that culture. Elephants were the largest animals in African culture. Um, but it was a metaphor that was often used and was often used by uh, peasants, by the working class, uh, to talk about um, that which is difficult or that which may be hard to come by. Jesus uses it here in relation to the rich and says it is, harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And in despair now, the disciples respond because Jesus also in this text says, children, the kingdom of God. It's hard to enter it. It's hard to enter the kingdom of God. It's difficult. And in despair, the disciples respond, well, if the rich can't be saved, and if it's that hard to get in, then who can do it? And thanks be to God, Jesus reminds them that God still works such miracles. To which we should all say amen, right? God's grace is sufficient. God's miracle-working power is able. The same God that has wrought miracles throughout the Gospel of Mark is able to do that which seems impossible. To help one overcome their attachment to things which holds them back from enjoying the good and eternal kind of life that Jesus has come to offer. Now, this is one of these stories that messes with both our Catholic and Protestant theologies, particularly of salvation. On the one hand, you have Jesus advocating for behavior as a prerequisite to salvation. On the other hand, you have Jesus admitting That salvation is impossible without divine intervention. But to make this a discussion about acquiring eternal life is to fall into the same error as the man in this story. Because what Jesus is doing is he is calling us to look deeper than means and to explore motives. Or as James T. Thompson puts it, If our primary concern is our own salvation through faith or works, then we have missed the point of both faith and works. That if that is our focus, if that is all the gospel is about, is how to get eternal life or how to be in the in crowd of the kingdom, and not about our motives, not about what has our heart, not about the things that are deep inside of us that need challenging because they are holding us back from enjoying the good life that our Father has come to provide for us through Jesus, um, then we have missed the essence of the gospel 
and the essence of Jesus' teachings. Now what is true, however, throughout the Gospels, is that Jesus is clear that inheriting eternal life or entering the kingdom requires relinquishing control over this life's treasures. I mean, just think about some of the things Jesus says from Matthew to John, right? The one who loses their life actually gains their life. Where your treasures are, there your heart will be also. Don't store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. And what is also true is that the first step into living the eternal kind of life is not always the easiest step. Actually following Jesus and enjoying this eternal kind of life is much harder than the Protestant's sinner's prayer or the Catholic's baptism into the church. It's much more difficult than that. It's more than saying some words at an altar. It's more than getting dunked under the water. Now, while these might be good soft starts into following Jesus and becoming a disciple of Jesus, the work of being a disciple of Jesus will not be easy. It will not be something that we just do every once in a while and doesn't challenge every facet of our lives. Following Jesus calls us to examine all the things which have a hold on our heart. And the work of being a disciple of Jesus will not always be easy, nor will it always feel light even when we're enjoying the blessings of it, according to Jesus in this passage, even when we receive the blessings of following, following Christ, he says it will be in the midst of what? Persecution. So even the following and the living out of it is not promised that it will be easy and light. And as we learn in this text, taking the first step is usually the most difficult and painful part. Whether it's Attending that first AA meeting in our lives, right? Or calling the marriage or family counselor. Sometimes that's a tough thing to do. Sometimes these first steps to living a whole life and a life of healing are the hardest. Leaving that toxic job. Talking with your teenager about your concerns for them. Or maybe even answering a call that God has on your life, even though it may mean parting with what you currently find the most security in. Upon hearing that God has the power to make the impossible candidate a good disciple, Peter cries out, and I love Peter in Mark. He's like extremely verbose in Mark. That's why some people believe he had a big influence over the publication of the gospel, the writing of it. Peter cries out and says, Look, we have left everything and followed you. To which Jesus responds with both an affirmation of the twelve's commitment to discipleship and a promise that their commitment to discipleship would be rewarded. That might not be rewarded in the same way. The family might not look like the family you came from. The house that you're provided may not look like the house that you really wanted or that you left. And it may be in the midst of persecution. Nevertheless, Jesus affirms to his disciples that whatever they have lost, it will be worth it. 
whatever they have laid down to walk in the ways and the paths of Jesus, it will be worth it. And this is where the text is both good, bad news and good news. At the end of this story, Jesus doesn't say to us, it is impossible to save any of you 21st century North American types that have so much money that you don't know what to do with it. Instead, he says, even though you're an impossible candidate for discipleship, with God, all things are possible. And he goes on to say, I see what you have done, disciples. I see your commitment. And I say, rejoice, because you will be rewarded. He says to us today, I see you who have lost career promotions because you chose your family over hours in the office. I see you who have given your free time away to take care of your ailing parents. I see you, the teenager who refused to give in to temptation for popularity or peer pressure for popularity and chose to have values rooted in your commitment to following Jesus. He says to you, I see you, Renovatus, who have given hours and days of your lives to make sure that others hear and receive the good news that you have found here. He says to us, your labor is not in vain. He says to us, taking up the cross will indeed be worth it. It will cost you. You may grieve. You may go in kicking and screaming. But if you will listen to the way the Spirit of God is challenging your hearts and calling you into wholeness and transformation, God is faithful and God will make a way for you. This text reminds us that God does see us. And for that, we should all rejoice. Amen? Musicians, come. We'll stand and close. Father, I want to thank you for your word this morning, first of all. And uh, God, I'm sure I misspoke. I probably stuttered and stammered through some of it. But may your spirit do what only your spirit can do and speak to our hearts, God. Maybe we're in here this morning and we've been wrestling with our faith and wondering, was it worth it? Was any of it worth it? Maybe we've wondered if God has seen our commitments to Him and to others. Or maybe we've been at a crossroads and we know we need to take that difficult first step. Whether that be a step in our faith come to you Lord or whether it be a step like calling a counselor finding the help that we need making that budget having those tough conversations whatever it is God I pray that your spirit will give us the strength and the fortitude to do what we have been hesitant to do God maybe to answer that call you have on our life but God, we recognize this morning that you are faithful and that you are good. And because of that, we are grateful. And what seems like an impossible thing for us to do
You have a way of making all things possible, God. So we ask that you do it in our lives and in the life of this church. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come, because it's the Lord who invites you and it is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Thank you again for joining us. We invite you to send your requests and stories to info at renovatuschurch.com and give by visiting our website, renovatuschurch.com. As we close every service at Renovatus, would you join me in praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.